First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4? This is our third week together in this wonderful book of Nehemiah as we have been looking at the great work that God gave to him, the great task of rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And we've already seen in this uh, book that this book contains a a timely word for us uh, as a church because we believe that God has called us to greater things uh, in the future, things that will stretch our faith uh, as a people here. And what we're going to see today in the book of Nehemiah is that greater things are never easy. Greater things always come with challenges. They always come with obstacles. There are reasons why we could give up. But if we keep our eyes on God, excuse me, He will strengthen our hands and He will help us to do the things that He has called us to do. We're going to look today at portions of Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6 uh, as we go along. But let's just begin by reading the first six verses. Of Nehemiah 4 together. Nehemiah 4, verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach on their own heads, and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity, do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders." And so we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you and thank you today that you are big enough, that you are greater, great enough, Father, for whatever challenges and, and obstacles are put in our path. Lord, we pray today that you would encourage us through your word, that you would instill within us today a greater faith, a greater confidence that you are able to do all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you uh, know me well, then you know that one of the things that I uh, love is college football. Uh, I am a uh, Florida State fan. This season, it is difficult to say that publicly, <laughs> but, uh, but I am. I, I do realize, though, that we do have some uh, fans of other uh, Florida schools uh, here in our church. We have some, some Gator fans, and we pray for you on a regular basis. <laughs> we have even some Miami Hurricane fans. The Lord have mercy on your soul. And we also have a, a growing number of uh, UCF Knight fans. Where are the Knights at in this place here today? Yes, and, and last year was quite a year for the UCF Knights, going, going undefeated, uh, claiming a national championship. I'm not even going to get into that, but uh, I like UCF better than Alabama, so I'm fine with it. 
But, you know, it was just a great story last year, and, and really one of the great stories on that UCF team was a young man named Shaquem Griffin. This is a, a picture of, uh, of him, and, and Shaquem is just incredible. He was born uh, with uh, something called amniotic band syndrome, which caused the fingers on his left hand to never fully develop. And so after dealing with intense pain as a child, his hand was amputated when he was only four years old, if you can imagine that. And yet that did not stop Shaquem. He ran track, uh, he played baseball, he played football, and he played football so well that he earned a scholarship to UCF and by his senior year was a standout player. And though he was not invited to the combine, he came to the uh, NFL scouting confine and uh, actually ran a 40-yard dash in 4.38 seconds, the fastest of any linebacker recorded. And then in April, he made history and became the first ever one-handed person to be drafted into the NFL, taken by the Seattle Seahawks in the fifth round. And then just two weeks ago, on September 9th, he started his first NFL game and recorded three tackles. And I think it goes without saying that making it to the NFL with only one hand is not easy. And most of us could not do it with two. But, you know, great things are never easy. Great things are always difficult when we attempt anything great, whether it's in sports, whether it's in our work, whether it is for the kingdom. They're, they're never easy. There will always be challenges to overcome. And so what I want us to do this morning as we walk through this uh, portion of the book of Nehemiah, I want us to see some of the obstacles that Nehemiah had to overcome, some of the things that his enemies were trying to do to stop the work of God. And, and then in the end, I want us to take all of that and I want us to, to, to think about the task that God has given us and some of the things that will make that task not easy either. Uh, but through it all, what I want us to see is that our great God is greater than every obstacle and everything that would stand in our way. He is able to overcome. There's at least five ways that Nehemiah's enemies tried to stop the work that God has given him. And the first one shows up in the very first few verses that we read in Nehemiah 4. They ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. Now, that's a tried and true method uh, that people have used over the centuries to take down their opponents. You ridicule them, uh, you mock them, uh, you try to make them doubt themselves and the work that they're trying to accomplish. Now, chapter 4 is not the first time in this book that the enemies of Nehemiah have showed up. Actually, back in chapter 2, uh, we read about Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, and his companions, Tobiah and Geshem. Uh, and they didn't like that Nehemiah had arrived in town. And they didn't like that there was somebody in Jerusalem who was looking out for the people of Jerusalem and trying to do good for them. And uh, they didn't like it because they wanted to keep the status quo intact. And they didn't like the idea of a strong Jerusalem with rebuilt walls around the city. They liked things the way they were. Uh, they liked uh, the power that they possessed. Uh, they liked uh, the money that they had, the influence that they had. And, and so they did not want this work to proceed. 
But in the beginning, they probably did not take Nehemiah too seriously. They probably thought, well, after all, what can one man really do? But by the time you come to Nehemiah chapter 4, really this was not a laughing matter anymore. Because Nehemiah had already made a plan. Uh, Nehemiah had shared that plan with the people. At the end of chapter 2, the people rose up and said, let us rise and build. And in chapter 3 that we'll look at next week, uh, the people began to work. They They were side by side as different families working on different portions of the wall. The wall was beginning to rise from the ashes. And now Sanballat and his friends realized we've got to take things up a notch. And so they began to mock and make fun of Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem and the work that they were doing. Look at verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews. So he was mad and not just a little mad. And he was furious. And so in verse 2, he gets the army together, the army of Samaria. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. And he wants to make sure that all of his friends, that all of those that were in his army, agreed with him about how foolish these Jews were to try to do this building project. And so he begins to hammer them with a series of of jokes and and sarcastic questions. He says, first off in verse 2, what are these feeble Jews doing? He's saying they're weak, they're they're feeble, they don't have what it takes to get this job done. Who who do they think that they are kidding? And you can imagine after every one of these little digs that uh, Sanballat's army of soldiers would roll with laughter. And you can just picture him feeding off of the crowd after every line that he delivers and he goes on to the next one. He says, will they fortify themselves? Do they really think that they can make themselves strong, that they can rebuild this wall? He says, will they make sacrifices? The idea there is that they think that by praying enough and by offering enough sacrifices that somehow their prayer is going to make the wall rise. It's going to take a lot more than that, Sanballat says. And then he says, will they complete it in a day? In other words, they have no idea how big this project is. They're they're, they're never going to finish it. They're going to give up way before uh, they come to the end of this project. And and then he tops it off by taking a shot at the building materials that they were trying to use. He says, will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burn. He's saying, do they think they're going to resurrect these stones? These, these stones are all charred bits of rubble. There's no way that they can use that to build this wall. Now, of course, that wasn't true. Uh, there was a lot of rubble, but there was also plenty of usable stones for them to get the job done. But Sanballat uh, wasn't going to let a little thing like the truth stand in the way of a good joke at their expense. And then in verse 3, Tobiah gets in on the act as well. And he kind of reminds me of that guy on The Tonight Show that stands over behind the desk. And after Jimmy Fallon makes a few jokes, he'll just kind of interject a joke every now and then. That's what Tobiah does. He he jumps in on the act here in verse 3, and he says, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break their stone wall down. It's going to be such a flimsy wall, even a little animal running on top of it is going to knock it down. That's all it will take. Now, thousands of years later, we know that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered some of the walls that 
Nehemiah built through excavation. And when I've had the chance to go to Israel, I have seen them with my own eyes. And portions of Nehemiah's walls were more than nine feet thick. It would take quite a few foxes to knock over a wall like that. But again, what they were saying didn't have to be true in order to be effective. They were trying to demoralize the people in Jerusalem to get them to throw in the towel before they had really even begun, but they would have none of it. In verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah does what he always does. He responds by going to God in prayer. Now what he prays, asking God to judge his enemies, to turn the evil that they were trying to bring on the people of God on their own heads, admittedly makes us a little uncomfortable. It reminds us of the imprecatory psalms that use similar language. And this is where we need to remember, though, that Nehemiah is not seeking personal vengeance. But what he is, is he is zealous for the glory and for the honor of the name of God. And what he's bringing our attention to is that when they were opposing Nehemiah and when they were opposing the work that the people of God were doing, the one that they were really opposing was God. Notice that Nehemiah and the people do not stop working on the wall even for a second. In verse 6, he says, so we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined up to half its height for the people had a mind to work And the people would not be discouraged by the enemy's attempts to mock them because they knew what God had called them to do. And so they just kept right on building the wall. And sometimes in our own lives, that's what we need to do. Day after day, we need to put one foot in front of the other and we just need to keep going by the grace of God even though it's not easy to do so. Again, greater things never are. So first, Nehemiah's enemies tried to ridicule, and that didn't work. And so, number two, they tried to intimidate him. To intimidate him. And you can see that in verses 7 and 8. Now, it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored, and that the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired to come together and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And so in addition to Sanballat and the Samaritans who lived to the north of Jerusalem, what we read in verse 7 is that they were joined by the Ammonites on the east, by the Arabians on the south, and by the people of Ashdod on the west, by the sea. And all of these groups were, were, were conspiring together to attack Jerusalem. They had Jerusalem entirely surrounded. Now, just how serious they were about attacking the city and how much of this was just saber-rattling, we really don't know. Ultimately, of course, they never actually did attack the city, and maybe because it was because they began to think about the fact that Nehemiah did have letters from King Artaxerxes, the king of the Persians, to do exactly what he was doing. And maybe they realized over time that if they were to attack Jerusalem, they would be inviting the wrath of the Persian Empire down upon themselves. But it does appear that at least at this point, they were contemplating an attack. And Nehemiah and people had to take that threat seriously. And so how does Nehemiah respond? 
Well, by now, we should know at least one of the ways that he responds is in prayer, and that's what he does. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So he actually does two things there, doesn't he, in verse 9. He prays, he tells God about it in prayer and asks God to help, and it says he sets a guard. He puts soldiers at the ready day and night. And and this is a balance that you really can see all the way through the book of Nehemiah. You see the people of God praying and relying on God and giving God all the glory for the things that he does, but you also see them doing what they can do. You don't see them saying, God, protect us, and then just sitting down on their hands and waiting for the enemy to come. And that's important because very often God answers our prayers through ordinary human means. And so eventually, as you read on in this chapter, Nehemiah organizes the people. Half of them are working and half of them are on guard with weapons in their hands. He keeps a a, a trumpet player right beside him so that in the event that the enemy attacks, he can sound the alarm and all the people can gather together for the battle. So his trust and his confidence is in God, but he also uses the wisdom that God gave him to make a plan and to execute it. And there are so many applications of this principle to our lives. You know, sometimes I will meet a a believer who is out of work and they will say, I'm praying for God to open a job up for me. And that is good. We, We should do that because ultimately God is the one who provides for us, but I've had times where I've asked that brother or that sister, and I've said, well, well, how many jobs have you applied for? And they'll say, well, none. And God wants us to pray for a job, but he also wants us to look for a job. And very often what we'll find is that he won't open the door if we're not willing to at least knock on it. Nehemiah prayed, and he planned. But even so, we see that the enemy's strategy of trying to intimidate the people was having some effect. Look at verse 10 with me. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything until we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. So again, the scare tactics were working. The people who lived in the villages right around Jerusalem were living in fear. They were thinking, oh no, they're going to come on us all at once and they're going to surprise us and we're going to turn around and we're going to be surrounded and there's going to be no way to escape. And, And then up in verse 10, you see that the workers were just getting tired. There was so much rubble and debris that they had to cart away from the walls of the city just to be able to get to the walls in order to rebuild them. And so the enthusiasm that they had at the beginning of their project was beginning to naturally wane. And so how does Nehemiah respond to all of these things? Well, again, in verse 13, he takes practical steps and positions soldiers at the lowest parts of the wall. He puts families together inside the walls and he tells them to fight 
for one another and to fight for the city. But then look at verse 14. This is what Nehemiah says there to the people. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So Nehemiah plans against the enemy, but in verse 14 he says, I'm not basing my confidence on my plan. Our confidence is based in the Lord. He said, remember the Lord, how great and how awesome he is, and then fight for one another with the strength that he provides. And that's why in verse 15, a verse we'll come back to a little later on, Nehemiah gives the glory to God, and he says that God is the one who brought his enemy's plans to nothing. And so far we've seen in chapter 4 how Nehemiah's enemies ridiculed him, how they tried to in- intimidate him. And though we don't have time to study it in depth this morning in chapter 5, uh, Nehemiah also has to deal with some internal uh, problems that were going on where some of the nobles in the city uh, were taking advantage of and exploiting some of the poorer people in the city. And Nehemiah had to fight to set that right. But then we come to chapter 6 and we find out that the same enemies that showed up in chapter 4 are not quite done yet. They've still got some other tricks up their sleeve. And so the third tactic they try is deceit. They tried to trick him. And look at how chapter 6 begins. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors in the gates that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. So Nehemiah's enemies see that this wall is getting closer and closer to being done, and they feel this is our last opportunity. At least there's no gates hanging there. At least there's still an opening. Uh, We need to take this project down before it is done. And so what they come up with is this letter that they write offering to meet with Nehemiah on the plain of Ono. Ono is on the western coast, about equidistant between Jerusalem and Samaria. And and so basically they're saying to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, meet us halfway. Uh, Nehemiah, won't won't you at least talk to us? Won't, Won't you be reasonable? You're not so unreasonable, Nehemiah, that you won't at least sit down and talk, are you? But Nehemiah realizes that at best, even if they were sincere in their desire to talk, that this would be an utter waste of time. That they had already shown themselves to be opposed to the project that God had given him in Jerusalem. And he knew that I'm not going to waste a day going there, a day talking to you, and a day coming back when I should be here overseeing the work that God has called me to do. But also, Nehemiah realizes that they were not being sincere. At the end of verse 2, he says, they thought to do me harm. And the word harm there comes from the same root as the word evil. He knows that they are up to no good. They wanted to meet with him in oh no. And Nehemiah says, oh no, I'm not meeting with you there. I'm not going to meet with you there. I'm not going to meet with you anywhere. 
And I love what Nehemiah says back to them in verse 3. I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. He's not being arrogant when he says that. He's saying God has given to me and to the people an important work. He's given to us an important task. And I'm not going to be distracted. And I'm not going to be diverted from what God has called me to do. And, and, and friend, you and I should be the same way. When God has called us to do something, whether that's something in our individual lives or something in our families, or whether that's something he's called our church to do collectively, we cannot and should not be distracted. And we can't be diverted. We must keep our focus on what God has called us to do. Verse 4 says they tried four times with that very same letter. But you know, if it was wrong for him to go the first time, it was still wrong for him to go the fourth time. And so he stands by his convictions, and every time he responds with the same thing. I'm not going to come down. Well, starting in verse 5, his enemies are getting more frustrated. And so they're starting to get more desperate, and so they move on to strategy number 4 to take Nehemiah down. They spread rumors about him. If you've ever had anyone spread a false rumor about you, that's uh, probably one of the hardest things that you'll ever have to go through. This kind of attack can be particularly devastating to a leader like Nehemiah. Now look at what they did to him, verses 5 through 9. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There's a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, let us consult together. And then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. But they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. So after sending him four normal sealed letters, he sends to Nehemiah an open letter that anybody can read. This would have been a sign of great disrespect to a leader like Nehemiah to send something that was an open book that anybody could read. And his effort here was to demoralize Nehemiah, to, uh, to make him afraid of the rumors that were circulating about him and to get him to throw in the towel and to quit. And what the letter says, as you look at it, he's basically saying, Nehemiah, rumors are, are flying around everywhere. It's, it's being reported among the nations. And Geshem says, and we all know Geshem would never lie, that, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Now, that was an old charge. That was the same charge you read about in Ezra chapter 4, and it had worked that time. And King Artaxerxes had believed it. He believed that the Jews were trying to rebel. And that's why in Ezra chapter 4, he put a stop to the work on the wall that was going on at that time. And so uh, Sanballat probably thought, this is a perfect uh, plan. You know, this has already worked once before. Let's just trot this thing out here again and see if we can get this to work again. And then he goes on and he says, and people are saying, Nehemiah, and listen, I'm only telling you this as a friend. Not that I believe it, but this is what they're saying. That you want to be king. And they're actually saying that you've hired people to run around the city proclaiming that you already are the king. And Nehemiah, everybody is talking about this. Geshem's already tweeted it. 
It's already on Facebook. It's already on Instagram. AP Press has picked up this story. They're running with it. It's front page news, Nehemiah. You have to realize this message is going to get back to King Artaxerxes. And what is he going to do when he finds out what you're trying to do? And so in light of all of this, look at the end of the letter. Sanballat says, in light of all of this, we should really get together and let me kill you. I mean, let me talk to you. And of course, Nehemiah sees through that ploy as well. And I love the way that he responds in verse 8. No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. You know, we can learn a lot from Nehemiah about how to respond to attack in this passage. While it's tempting to run around on a crusade to defend yourself from the lies that people are telling about you, that is rarely the wise course of action. And so what Nehemiah does is he just simply denies it. He keeps on doing what is right, and he trusts God that God is going to set things right in the end. As one person has said, if we will take care of our character, we can trust God to take care of our reputation. Verse 9, Nehemiah prays again, says, God, you're trying to weaken my hands. God, would you strengthen my hands? Oh, man, this had to be so infuriating to Sanballat and his friends. These guys were working so hard to try to undermine Nehemiah, to try to get him to give up, but nothing was working. But they have one more trick to go to. Number five, they tried to discredit him. Look at verse 10. With me. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. But that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that I might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid." Now, Nehemiah is invited to come over to the house of a man that he considered a friend, a man named Shemaiah. He was a friend. He was most likely a part of, the, of a priestly family. And as one commentator said, Nehemiah probably felt safe going to Shemaiah's house. He, he claimed to be a man of God. He claimed to have a word of God for Nehemiah. And Nehemiah desperately needed to hear a word from God. And so he goes in with his ears open, ready to hear from him. But what he doesn't know is that by this time his old friend has been bought and paid for by Sembalat. And his old friend is now a new enemy. And we don't know why Shemaiah is shut up in his house, as the text says. There's several theories about that. But, but in the end, it was a way to get Nehemiah to come over and talk with him. And he tells Nehemiah, Nehemiah, they're coming to kill you tonight. And so what we need to do is we need to go to the temple and we need to hide out in the temple. Nehemiah, there's no time to lose. We need to do it now. But God gives Nehemiah discernment. 
to be able to tell that this was not right. He says, should a man like me flee and run away? He's saying, I'm, I'm a leader among the people of God. What, what, would it, what kind of example would I be setting if I ran off in fear? And then even more importantly than that, Nehemiah said, who am I to go into the temple? He knew that he was not a priest, that it was not his place to go into certain areas within the temple complex. King Uzziah had tried that many years before, and the Lord had struck him with leprosy, and Nehemiah had learned his lesson. He said, who am I to go into the temple? I, I won't do it. Earlier he had said to Sanballat, I will not come down, and now he says to Shemaiah, I will not go in. And in verse 12, you can see the insight that God gave him. I perceived that God had not sent him at all. How, how did he know that? He knew that because what Shemaiah was telling him to do was against the word of God. And friend, when someone comes to you and claims to be giving you godly counsel about something that you need to do in your life, if the thing that they are telling you to do goes against the word of God, then you can know right off that's not godly counsel. Because God does not contradict himself. God is not going to tell you or me to do something today that he's already told us in his word not to do. And so just like Nehemiah, we need to test everything that we hear against <clears throat> the word of God. You know, what our enemy will try to do as well is to induce us to sin. Same thing they were trying to do to Nehemiah. If, if, if Satan can't give us to give up, then he will get us to give in and fall into sin. He's always on the prowl like a lion seeking someone to devour. He wants us to fall down and he wants us to stay down so that the Lord cannot use us for his purposes. We've seen several reasons why Nehemiah's task was not easy. He had enemies who ridiculed him and tried to intimidate him and tried to trick him, who spread rumors about him, who tried to discredit him. And, and, and so here's the deal. To just kind of sum all of this up, the work God gave Nehemiah to do wasn't easy. And the work that God has given our church to do won't be easy either. Because the main idea today, great works, greater things never are easy. They always come with challenges. They always come with obstacles. And, and we should expect those obstacles to come. Now, the reasons that our task will be difficult are, are different. We're not dealing at this time with any human enemies that are trying to oppose the work that God is doing here. The only person I know who opposes greater things is my wife, and that's just because she doesn't like me eating desserts every single night of the week. But otherwise, she's very supportive. And, and, and I, want, I want to make sure that I, that I say this clearly. I'm not talking today about someone who, who prayerfully disagrees with, with some aspect of what we're proposing with greater things. You know, in the church, we will disagree sometimes about the what and the how, but we agree about the purpose. We have the same basic heart in the church of God to see the kingdom of God move forward. Again, sometimes we disagree about how that's carried out, and that is okay. D despite what our culture says, you can disagree with someone without being their enemy. 
But what's going on here with Nehemiah is something very different. These are people from outside the people of God who are opposing the people of God and who are actively working against the progress of the people of God. And so that's why I say again that, that, that what's going to make this task difficult for us is going to look a little different. There's going to be some different reasons why Greater things won't be easy for us. And, and I've given some thought this week to what a few of those reasons might be. Here, here's the first one. It won't be easy because fear is natural. And faith requires the supernatural. There is no denying that this is a big task in front of us, that this is a big goal in front of us that we're hoping and, and, and praying to reach. And like we talked about last week, the, the monetary figure that's in front of us, which is daunting, is really not the hardest part of this. The hardest part of this is, the biggest part of this is what we're ultimately praying will happen. And that's the transformation in the lives of thousands of people. And we're praying that churches, new churches, will be planted here and in cities around the country and that those cities will be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that is a huge task. And when you're faced with a huge task, our natural response, if we're walking in the flesh, is always going to be fear instead of faith. That's what it was for the Israelites when they stood on the border of the promised land. They saw how big the giants were and they got scared. And they didn't move forward in faith. Naturally, we all turn to fear. And that's one reason why this won't be easy. We have to constantly look to God and ask Him to strengthen our hands and, and ask Him to give us the faith to believe that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Here's another reason why greater things won't be easy. Because sacrificially giving means making sacrifices. And we're going to talk more about this in the next few weeks, but there's no way that this goal of greater things will be accomplished apart from the sacrificial giving of God's people. And that word sacrificial means making sacrifices. It it means giving up things that right now we enjoy, and that's not easy. That's not something in our flesh that we relish. In fact, in our flesh, what we want to do is, is to spend everything that we have on ourselves and our own pleasure. It's only the Spirit of God that can free us from that, that can enable us to give and to support something that God is doing. And and, and that's part of the reason why I believe that God is going to work in a spiritually transformative way in our lives during this time. It's because it's going to require us to, to deal with that. It's going to require us to come before God and ask God, God, what would you have me sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your kingdom? And that's a good thing. But it's not an easy thing. Here's another reason it won't be easy. Our patience will be tested. I don't even know all the ways that our patience will be tested. I just know that our patience will be tested. Maybe one of those areas that our patience will be tested is in terms of the cost of the project. You know, if you've ever tried to do a building project around your house, what do you know? You know it always ends up costing more than you thought it was going to at the beginning. And you don't know why, you don't even know where that came from, but that's just what happens, right? It, it tests our patience. Another area that our patience is going to be tested is in the time involved. Another thing we know about building projects, they always take longer than you thought they were going to take. And naturally, we just don't like to wait, but we know there's going to be delays. We don't know where they're going to come from. 
But there's going to be delays that will happen. We're going to have to learn to wait on the Lord's timing. And waiting is not something we naturally like to do. It's part of what makes it hard. Here's another reason greater things will be hard. There's going to be inconveniences along the way. What they'll be, I, I don't know. I do know what one of them will be, and that's, that's the parking lot. <laughs> you know, we're already out of room in the parking lot, but imagine when half of our parking is a construction zone. Have you thought about that yet? Uh, imagine when a lot of the places where we park right now, there's construction tape all around it. And for maybe a year or longer, we have to walk around a parking zone to get here for worship. And so before the parking situation gets better, it's going to get worse. There's going to be inconveniences. Are we willing to face those inconveniences for the sake of the gospel? And then probably one of the biggest ones that will be hard because we don't like change. None of us do. None of us do. You know, when my wife decides that my toothbrush is too disgusting, I'll come to the sink one day and I'll find a new toothbrush laying there. And sometimes it's, it's a different kind of toothbrush. It has different bristles on it. And I look at it. I'm not so sure about it. And I'm thinking, what was wrong with the other toothbrush? That thing was working just fine, right? And, and, and we're all like that, right? We don't like change. And so even with the excitement of a new building, the excitement of the church plants that will be taking place, there's going to be a lot of changes that will be happening. And change is hard for us. That's where we need to remember the things that will always stay the same. That we'll still be worshiping the same beautiful Savior no matter what room we're meeting in. And that we'll still have the same mission that Jesus has given us to make disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. And then what I really think is the greatest danger for us over the next few years, the last reason why greater things won't be easy, is that we'll be tempted to lose our focus. It's easy to start to focus on the progress of the construction, on the progress of the building itself, and on what's happening, and on all the little decisions that have to be made in any building project, the color of the carpet, how many stalls will be in the ladies' restroom. And and if we start to, to think more and more about those things, over time, our focus can become inward instead of where God wants it to be, and that's outward on the people that we have written down, the names of those that we're praying would come to know Jesus Christ. That is what greater things is about. And God wants us to never focus inwardly. He wants us to focus outwardly. And he wants us to focus upwardly on who he is. And on his praise and on his glory and on what he is doing. Church, greater things won't be easy. We should have our eyes wide open about that. But again, greater things are never easy. And God has called us to greater things. And he is greater. And every obstacle and every challenge that will come our way so we can move forward with faith and we can move forward with confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. And so because God has called us to greater things like Nehemiah, let's respond the same way that Nehemiah did. First off, let's pray. Let's pray like we saw in the word today at every turn, every obstacle that he was presented with, he responded with prayer. I I love last week how the entire day was committed to God in in prayer, not only in our services, but as our whole church family walked throughout the building and prayed out on the side of the new proposed worship center, giving that entire day to the Lord in prayer. I pray that we'll not stop throughout 
all of this greater things initiative. We're not planning a lot of extra meetings and things. What we're asking is that in all the meetings we already have, every time your small group gets together, that you would give time to prayer for greater things. That you would ask God to be working in our church during these days, to be working in, in your heart. And in our heart as a church, that we would be praying, keeping our eyes on the one, the only one who's able to do this. And then secondly, let's persevere. Let's persevere. No matter what was thrown at Nehemiah, he just continued to build the wall. He just kept saying, hand me another brick. And he just kept doing the job that God had given him. And so church, let's do the same. Let's persevere in what God has called us to do, no matter what challenges come or what obstacles come, because again, we know that he is big enough. And then finally, like Nehemiah, let's praise. Let's praise our God together. Yes, Nehemiah planned. Yes, he put the people in position. But at the end of the day, he knew that it was really God who had overcome all the obstacles. In chapter 4, verse 15, this is what he said. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his own work. Nehemiah knew that the enemy was too strong and that they were too weak, but he also knew that God was the one who was able to frustrate the enemy's plans. And the same is true for us. The task is too big and we are too small, but God is big enough. Greater things is a God-sized task that only God can do, and so only God can receive the praise and the glory that belongs to him alone. You know, so much of this story today was about a man from Samaria named Sanballat who was opposing the work that God was doing. You know, it reminded me about a time in the Gospels when Jesus met with a woman from Samaria. Do you remember that? And he sat down at a well beside this broken woman who had already been married five times and now she was living with a man that was not her husband, and Jesus met this broken woman right where she was. And he offered her living water that would satisfy the deepest needs that were in her heart. And then Jesus went to Jerusalem, the, the same city that Nehemiah built his walls around, but Jesus went there not so much to build a wall, but to build a bridge. And he went to the cross, and on that cross he suffered and he bled and he died for your sin and for my sin. And then he rose from the dead, he conquered the grave, and because of that, he has made a way for us. He has made a bridge for us to be able to walk across by faith, to be able to have a relationship with God. And you know what? He offers that to us, even though we have all been like Sanballat. Even though the Bible says we have all been enemies of God. We have all lived in rebellion against God, every single one of us. We have lived life on our terms instead of his term. What is that? That's an enemy. And yet, despite our rebellion, despite the fact that we've acted and behaved like Sam Mallet, God still meets with us at the well in Samaria. God still offers us living water to drink that can change our lives. And if you've never drank that water before, if you've never experienced that forgiveness and life that comes in knowing Jesus, and I'm so glad you're here today, and I pray you won't leave this place without coming to know him. I want to pray for us, and then I want to invite you to come 
of God speaking to your heart. Father, thank you that you love us right where we are. Thank you that you meet us right where we are. Thank you that even though we have rebelled against you, you offer us living water to drink. Your son Jesus made a bridge for us to come to know you. Thank you that your son Jesus persevered. He endured the cross, despising its shame because of the joy that was set before him. I pray, Lord, you'd work in every single one of our lives that we might trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.